Hello, it is Liam Schmidt here from Irish Funds. Today we are bringing you another of the highlights from our recent 9th annual Irish Funds UK Symposium held in London on November 24th. We are delighted to share with you our regulatory keynote address presented by Derville Rowland, Deputy Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland. Derville gives an insight into the Central Bank's broader strategy and approach, including the concept of open strategic autonomy, as well as touching on the topics of sustainable finance, delegation and digital assets. Derville also delivers some timely macroprudential announcements for the non-bank sector. I'm sure you will find our insights to be very interesting and do keep an eye out for further podcasts shortly from the UK Symposium 2022. Good morning, everybody. Uh, It's really nice to be here in person at, I think it's the ninth uh, annual Irish Funds UK Symposium. And I think I'll start by uh, acknowledging Irish Funds did a super job in uh, rearranging uh, the conference at short notice, uh, I think to the benefit of all of the attendees, and that couldn't have been an easy task. But I'm glad they did so, because for me, the timing is quite fortuitous. It allows me to give you an important update Uh, from our work on some of our macroprudential policy in the non-bank sector, which in fact we're only announcing today. But I'm going to begin, if I may, with saying a little bit about our own strategy, our regulatory philosophy, our views, and uh, I'll touch on a concept of open strategic autonomy. Um, And of course, uh, like many others, I'm going to say a few words about sustainable finance, reference delegation, and uh, much in the news uh, in recent times, say a few words about uh, digital assets. But the common thread in all of these topics is the breaking of complex new ground for regulators and industry alike. So I'm going to talk about some of these challenges that uh, we in the central bank see ahead and recognize that we'll have to solve together with our counterparts in Europe at international level, as well as with you, industry, we all need to work together to tackle these issues. So in his latest work, the scientist and academic Vaclav uh, Smil asked why most people in modern societies, in his words, have such a superficial knowledge about how the world really works. And he suggests that the complexities of the modern world are an obvious explanation. People are constantly interacting with black boxes whose relatively simple outputs require little or no comprehension of what it is that's taking place inside of those boxes. He said it is true of physical items such as mobile phones and laptops to mass scale procedures such as vaccination, which is something we're all really familiar with in recent times. He points out that the general terms of physics and biology are in fact really less meaningful anymore because the world has become increasingly specialized and you need subject matter expertise, what he calls the atomization of knowledge. And I see really significant parallels with the global financial sector. No longer can one person truly be an expert in all of its complexities. And such complexities and the interdependencies that they create pose a real challenge, both in terms of managing and regulating risk and resilience. And as we all uh, too painfully know from 2008, this is a critical challenge for regulators, 
not just to identify the black boxes in the first place, but to look into and to understand them. So in the non-bank sector in particular, where work continues on issues such as channels of propagation and contagion, for example, it's really very much a work in progress. And at the same time, regulation's purpose is to safeguard stability, protect consumers and investors. But it is not to stifle innovation or to eliminate the right of an informed individual or firm to take a certain amount of risk for the potential reward of return. So when we focus on creating the regulatory context in which potential benefits of innovation for consumers, investors, businesses, and society can be realized, we also acknowledge risks need to be effectively and proportionately managed. But we think regulation needs to be forward-looking, connected, proportionate, predictable, transparent, and very importantly, agile. And we work at home and abroad on that basis. In the context of the wider world, the central bank, Ireland as a whole, and uh, looking in Europe and abroad, the UK remains an important partner and interlocutor. And we have long established historic relationships with significant interlinkages and dependencies between our financial sectors. The recent turmoil in the UK pension sector and the impact on liability-driven investment funds was a clear example of the complex interactions between the two economies and its financial sectors. Investment funds authorised by the Central Bank of Ireland have aggregate holdings in UK gilts of approximately 267 billion in sterling. It represents 6% of total assets under management, and of that 267 billion, LDI funds represent the largest subcomponent of UK gilt holdings by Irish domiciled funds. And throughout that period, in conjunction with other NCAs in Europe and wider, we engaged proactively with the managers of LDI funds to ensure that they took appropriate action. The resilience of LDI funds across Europe has subsequently improved, and we welcome that. But given the market outlook, we do expect that the levels of resilience and reduced risk profile of those funds should be maintained. And we don't think that any reduction in the resilience at individual subfund level is warranted at this point. That episode and the effect of interaction across the various NCAs has emphasized once again the importance of continuing coordination and effective response to market developments, particularly those with a cross-border dimension. In the EU, attention is focused on the concept of open strategic autonomy. Its purpose is to strengthen the resilience of the EU while seeking to ensure it remains open to the world. Here in the UK, the focus has turned to the development of domestic regulations, and with that comes the potential of moving away from the established and already agreed EU frameworks. Of course, that is absolutely the right of the UK. But it does bring a dynamic and new challenge, particularly that of divergence, where a lack of consistency in the approach um, with regard to risk could potentially undermine our collective effectiveness. So, from a regulatory perspective, I believe it's really essential for the EU 
and the UK to continue working closely together to ensure to the maximum extent possible the consistent and stable application of our frameworks. And as the challenges of the last few years have already shown us, strengthening our alliances with like-minded partners is more important than ever. And that makes our work together with others in the Financial Stability Board and at uh, IOSCO level vital to the cooperation that builds common approaches to collective challenges. Which brings me to microprudential policy. And again, in the past we have had a significant overhaul of financial regulation, particularly for the banking and certain market activities, to improve resilience and reduce systemic risk in a way that also benefited investor protection. And since that time, as banks retreated from certain areas of activity, the non-bank sector has moved in to fill those gaps. And we can see many examples of this in practice, whether uh, it's in business lending through loan origination funds or the significant growth in money market funds as cash management vehicles. And the non-bank sector brings many benefits. It diversifies the channels of finance available to the real economy. It allows for a broader diversification of borrower risk and it brings a benefit to financial stability. But as that sector continues to grow, so too does its systemic importance. And in the context of investment funds specifically, systemic risks arise in the interplay between vulnerabilities, for example, liquidity mismatch and the use of leverage, and interconnectedness across the sectors. So, changing dynamics in the supply and demand of market liquidity, combined with the use of leverage and the larger size of the sector means that market shocks can be amplified and transmitted to a greater and more rapid extent than previously was the case. And the financial system in Ireland is heavily weighted towards the non-bank sector. The largest part of the sector is made up of investment funds, money market funds and special purpose entities. We, in fact, have the third largest fund sector in the world. And as many in this room will know, by the end of 2021, there were nearly 10,000 such entities, up from about 6,000 in 2016. And in the same period, asset values of those entities increased from about 3 trillion to 5.6 trillion. So given the size of the non-bank sector in Ireland, and particularly the linkages of certain subsectors to the domestic economy, macroprudential policy for non-banks is a priority for the central bank. For open-ended funds, the Financial Stability Board recently published a revised uh, some of its 2017 recommendations on potential structural vulnerabilities in the asset management sector, with a particular focus on liquidity management tools. The Central Bank of Ireland co-chaired that work and we will continue to engage with our international counterparts to implement it. And as the financial system and our economies adjust to higher interest rates and the end of a prolonged period of quantitative easing, it's imperative that we redouble our efforts globally to develop and operationalise macroprudential frameworks, especially in investment funds. So the necessity to take action applies domestically as well as internationally, and today we're announcing the first macroprudential policy measures for non-banks targeting Irish property funds. We're activating a macroprudential leverage limit and introducing guidance for enhanced liquidity management, targeting Irish domiciled funds investing in Irish commercial property. We're using European regulation for the leverage limit, and we're the first national competent authority to take this approach, 
And as part of that process, we consulted with ESMA, who has issued a formal opinion supporting the leverage limit in the interests of stability and uh, integrity of the financial system. The commercial real estate sector is systemically important in Ireland. And Irish authorised funds investing in Irish property have become a key participant in that market. They hold about 35% of investable CRE. The growing form of financial intermediation entails benefits for Irish macroeconomic and financial stability, often established and funded by overseas investors. Property funds provide an alternative channel for financing for investment in CRE, reducing reliance on domestic sources of capital and strengthening a diversified economy. However, the changing nature of financial intermediation also raises potential that new vulnerabilities can emerge. So it's important that we adapt our frameworks to address these issues and in line with our principles as a regulator of being forward-looking, connected, proportionate, predictable, transparent, and agile. These measures were announced today and they are designed uh, to ensure that this growing form of finance remains resilient to shocks. Our analysis has been deep, widespread, we have consulted, and we make some uh, adjustments, uh, particularly now as we uh, introduce these measures. For the leverage limit, we introduce a 60% limit on ratio of property funds total debt to total assets, and we recognize that existing property funds will need some time, and five years in implementation has been determined as appropriate. So it will allow for a gradual and orderly adjustment of, of leverage for that group. The duration of the implementation period also reflects the current macroeconomic environment of rising interest rates and a slowdown in global and Irish economic growth predictions. From today onwards, we will not authorise any new Irish property funds with leverage in excess of 60%, and we're issuing guidance on the minimum liquidity timeframes expected for property funds. We expect generally that property funds should provide for a minimum liquidity time frame of at least 12 months, taking into account the nature of the assets held, and we're providing for an 18-month implementation period for existing funds to take appropriate action in accordance with this guidance. And we expect that property funds newly authorised from today will adhere to the guidance from inception. And due to their reduced systemic risk, funds primarily investing in social housing will not be covered by the leverage limit. And we will allow some adjustments for development assets to avoid any excessively tight application of the leverage limit. These measures aim to guard against the potential risk from the financial vulnerabilities in the property sector and any risk of forced selling behaviors in the time of stress. They aim to build resilience of this growing form of financial intermediation so that property funds are better able to absorb rather than amplify any future shocks. And these are our first macroprudential policy tools for non-banks, but we see this as a priority area both for us and for our international partners. I want to now turn to delegation for a moment. Delegation is another particular area of focus for us and for Europe. And while the proposals are still to be finalized, the AIFMD review is likely to bring targeted changes to the current regime and to enhance the reporting of delegation activities, particularly to third countries, and ESMA is positioned to conduct an in-depth review of delegation in the fund sector. Ireland has robust requirements in place 
<clears throat> pardon me, to protect against letterbox entities and to ensure effective oversight of delegates by fund management companies. We continue to develop and refine our own domestic rules to ensure they reflect not only the EU level requirements, but that firms also meet our expectations in terms of their substantive structures, activities, and risk profile in Ireland. The proposals contained in the AIFMD review mark the start of a longer term process that will take a deeper and more comprehensive look into delegation in Europe. It can be expected that after a period of evaluation and reflection, further work in this area may be proposed. I know that industry, all of you, will be actively engaged at both national and European level on this issue. And your views will be absolutely vital in forming a balanced and objective approach to delegation in the future. Turning to ESG investment for a moment, we're extremely committed to supporting the growth of this segment in Ireland and enabling the significant investment in sustainable projects that's needed to support the transition to carbon neutrality. We've been actively engaged with industry in order to give as much clarity around our expectations as possible. And along with other regulators, we have a number of priorities in this regard. First of all, we're concerned about firms themselves. The risk to their own sound functioning and the stability of the financial system, which might arise from increasingly frequent climate events or from the potential impact on investments as a result of the broader transition to a more sustainable economy. And that really could have significant impacts for the firms themselves. But secondly, and just as importantly, we want to ensure that investors are fully informed and not misled. Where investments or financial products are described as green or sustainable, they must be meaningful and accurate, based on reliable parameters that are consistently applied across Europe. Investors have high expectations for and from the fund sector with regard to sustainable finance. And it's critical that the sector is positioned to support a timely and effective transition to a more sustainable economy. And to do that, standards must be high. As you know, from the 1st of January in 2023, additional requirements under the EU SFD or a level two disclosure obligations will apply. And we consider these new obligations to be instrumental in terms of the level of information available to investors and the products in which they will invest. The new requirements will mean that Irish investment funds must make extensive updates to their fund documentations and provide more in-depth sustainable disclosure amendments to their pre-contractual documentation. And the tolerance for any disclosures that do not meet these requirements will be low. And that's in light of the length of time that the industry have had to comply with these uh, regulatory changes and the importance of what we are talking about. But we have recently published information in order to serve to assist. It's designed to inform and assist industry in ensuring that investors and markets can have a high degree of trust and confidence in green and sustainable products produced and sold in the Irish jurisdiction. We simply see this as a win-win. The final topic I'm sure you'll be glad to hear that I want to touch on is digital assets, where events of last year has shown uh, that there are many black boxes and clearly not all of them are fully understood. The collapse of FTX 
following, as it did, the collapse of other crypto entities and the general turmoil that we have seen across the sector this year has reignited some fundamental questions as to whether this is a sector that should or indeed should not be regulated at all. This is a rapidly growing sector that is increasingly intertwined with the traditional or mainstream financial sector. It's highly volatile, very susceptible to fraud, and has a relatively high failure rate. The asset class has done real harm to retail investors in the last year, and the digital assets ecosystem is not a suitable or safe space for retail investors, something that we have said numerous occasions. Again, um, there are more than one perspective, though. Against that, there is still substantial demand for digital assets, which are wider than crypto alone, and in particular from professional investors. But the digital asset sector lacks the rules and protections that have benefited the development of the mainstream financial sector. And EU frameworks, MICA, DORA, will bring important improvements. They definitely do not present a complete set of answers to all of the difficult issues that will arise in this arena. So, again, working at global, international level, the Financial Stability Board and IOSCO have set out the views that firms presenting the same or similar risks should be subject to the same or similar regulation. A cornerstone of their efforts to develop an international regulatory framework in digital assets and decentralized finance. And we very much support this approach. We need to start speaking the same language and building a similar view of issues, whether it's around financial resilience, better management of conflicts of interest, of greater transparency and security for customers. So I'm going to try to finish where I started with Smill, the author who posits that a realistic grasp of our past, our present, and uncertain future is probably the best foundation for approaching the unknowable expanse of time ahead of us. We cannot be specific, but know it will include both progress and setbacks. The future, as ever, is not predetermined. It, it, its outcome depends on our own actions. So as a regulator, that very much uh, speaks to me when thinking about solving the problems of new complex territory. And let me emphasize, in the central bank, as we cover this new ground, we do not move in isolation or simply with our peer regulators. We are an open and engaged regulator, knowing the importance of listening to our stakeholders, building dialogue, and being open to feedback will solve for better results. We don't just welcome your continued engagement. We see it as essential to our mission of serving the public interest by maintaining monetary and financial stability and ensuring the system operates in the best interests of consumers, investors, and the wider economy. I thank you for your attention this morning, and I hope you have an enjoyable and productive conference. Thank you.